advocates of free trade cannot be permitted to urge that, like the Affair Dreyfus, this policy is a chose juguet and cannot be reopened. The case must be reconsidered, and though the judgment may be reaffirmed, it is possible that it may be reversed. That was a man speaking in 1911, William Cunningham, in a book called The Case Against Free Trade. Now, we have a, a rebuttal to that argument that we'll be hearing from uh, a moment, not specifically to what was said in 1911, but basically to the same argument against free trade that you hear over and over and over again, and now again from the Biden administration in 2023. We also have with us today, though, uh, a colleague of mine, Andrew Ward, FIJ, who last was here talking about con laws, certificate of need laws, and today is going to take us on a Fourth Amendment spree and a little bit of the fruit of the poisonous tree. So, hey, Andrew, good to be back. welcome back. Thank you very much. And I should say, uh, you're listening to Andrew on Short Circuit, your podcast on the Federal Courts of Appeals. I'm your host, Anthony Sanders, director of the Center for Judicial Engagement at the Institute for Justice. Now, uh, the next couple of weeks, you won't be hearing from me. We have a couple live shows coming up, and our live show hostess extraordinaire, Anya Bidwell, will be hosting those. She'll be at Southern Methodist University next week for a live show with the students there. And then that week after that, at our forum with Joanna Schwartz, whose book, Shielded, um, she'll be discussing with uh, Professor Schwartz herself and a, um, a bunch of other scholars. And then I'll be back after that. But for today, we are so excited to have with us for the first time um, a free trader extraordinaire. Uh, he also dabbles in top five lists, University of Virginia um, sports teams, and uh, unfortunately, I believe he's also a Dallas Cowboys fan. But we'll set that aside for today and welcome Scott Litzicum of the Cato Institute. Scott, welcome to Short Circuit. Hey, thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, just for the record, uh, I'm only a Cowboys fan by birth. I uh, don't have much of a choice in the matter. Uh, I was born and raised in Dallas. Uh, and I don't believe in um, changing your stripes. I think people who have multiple sports teams, fandoms, I think that's like unnatural and weird. Uh, and so, look, I, I'm stuck with them. And, and what you're going to do? So unlike your views on immigration and emancipating yourself from the past and moving to a different land and adding to their right. culture, you, sports, you just can't do that. Well, correct. I mean, sports is nothing more than about uh, hometown culture. Um, I mean, we, we are essentially, you know, the old joke is we're rooting for laundry because uh, the, the people change all the time. So uh, if you can't stick with that, then I mean, what's the point, really? Right, right. Well, uh, let's talk a little bit about what the point is of free trade and specifically steel tariffs. So on our <laughs> yeah. um, on our newsletter, Short Circuit, we, uh, as listeners, uh, probably just about all of our listeners know, we run down the latest cases from the federal courts of appeals, but it's very rare, very rare that we have a case from the federal circuit. So that's kind of the lost circuit because yeah. frankly, we don't understand most of them. Uh, half of them are patent cases that are these weird other cases, but sometimes cases come along and we find them and put them on the newsletter because they, they seem a little more important. And something came across a couple of weeks ago and was in the newsletter, and it was about these steel tariffs that we've been hearing yeah. about for years now under multiple administrations. And it rejected, essentially, the latest challenge to these uh, very stupid steel tariffs uh, that we right. have. So, Scott, tell us about the latest in this saga, maybe where it came from, where it's going, and, and what the federal circuit is up to. Sure. Um, you know, before I begin, I, I just note that uh, the steel tariffs, we, we wrote a paper at Cato um, now about a year ago on uh, how we got the steel tariffs and all of the problems that they raise, uh, economic problems, legal problems, diplomatic ones and the rest. Um, and 
as terrible as this policy is, uh, I think it actually provides a lot of fantastic lessons. You know, you went, read that guy back a uh, hundred years ago. You get all these protectionist arguments, uh, and I think that the steel tariff case really provides us with a fantastic case study, uh, debunking a lot of the things you hear about protectionism, how uh, econ- how it works economically, how it's on behalf of the little guy, how it's implemented in a technocratic, smart way, and of course, how it's all totally legal and authorized by by the government, the Constitution, the rest of all that. So um, with that very long wind up, um, let's get a little background on the steel tariff case. Uh, Full disclosure, in my previous life, I was a trade lawyer and I did actually work on these cases a good bit. So I have a bit of PTSD when it comes to uh, talking about steel tariffs. I, I, I handled a lot of this stuff for, for a couple of years. And let me tell you, boy, was it traumatic. Who are your who are your kind of clients? Uh, just curious what when you when you were doing the work, were they like importers of who wanted cheap steel? Yeah. So that's actually another it's a good point. They were they were American manufacturers, uh, or at least American based manufacturers, who employed a lot of good old fashioned Americans, um, and who deigned to want to import steel and aluminum from obvious nefarious outlaws like uh, Canada Ugh. and uh, Japan, uh, Korea. And I believe Germany also in there. Um, so these these folks were were uh, importing, doing their business, uh, making other stuff. I should note these were all manufacturers. Um, and then suddenly um, the president slaps twenty five percent tariffs on steel, ten percent steel percent tariffs on aluminum, and does so in about the most egregiously ridiculous and slapdash way you could possibly do it in the sense that first they used this statute section 232 um, that was supposed to be about national security. If you look back at the cases, um, there weren't a lot of them, but if you look back at the cases, these were um, cases that had some plausible nexus to actual U.S. national security. Uh, the things that were getting restricted, the countries that were being targeted, these were, uh, you know, you really kind of went, yeah, okay, that's that's uh, national security. In this case, on the other hand, the president just slapped a global tariff on imports from all of our allies, uh, so very close allies. Um, no, no 232 case had ever done that. Uh, he did it based on a report from the Commerce Department that didn't even identify an immediate threat to the United States in terms of national security. In fact, the Department of Defense, back then Secretary Mattis, wrote a letter that said, quote, yeah, we don't need tariffs. Um, only 3% of total U.S. steel output uh, is needed by the Department of Defense and defense-related stuff. So we are totally fine. The United States makes tons of steel. We're totally fine. Um, and oh, by the way, we like our allies. Please don't tariff them. Uh Finally, the Department of Commerce didn't recommend a 25% tariff. They recommended something like a 24% tariff based on this obscure uh, 80% capacity utilization argument that was literally like they Googled it. It was it was a single website that said that uh, companies become profitable around 80% capacity utilization. And so uh, that's what the Department of Commerce used. That was that was their rigorous analysis, right? But Trump didn't like 24. He said, he said, no, we need a big round number. So he rounded it up to 25. That is the level of scientific discourse you're going on here, right? Remember, protectionism, very technocratic. And of course, he announced the tariffs in a room full of steel industry CEOs and steel workers unions representatives and aluminum company folks and the rest, right? So again, hitting back at the idea that tariffs are really for the little guy, this is just good old-fashioned corporate welfare and cronyism. Now, if you think that's bad, and it was, it actually gets even worse. Um, About seven months after the tariffs were implemented, the president got in a tiff with Turkey and uh, their president Erdogan. And out of nowhere, he just says, that's it. We're doubling their tariffs. Now, there was no actual formal determination. The Commerce Department did not reanalyze this. 
the, and the president was out there tweeting like he did um, all about how we're going to double their tariffs and whatever, not about U.S. national security, not about the capacity utilization, the stuff I just mentioned. This was all to twist Turkey's arm to get them to agree to other non-unrelated issues. Like building a Trump Tower? Or- I can't remember exactly. I think it was something about Syria, but regardless, it was, had nothing to do with the underlying economic arguments in the Department of Commerce's report. It was, it was just twist arm twisting, right? Which Trump, of course, loved to do. But wait, there's more. Two years after, after the tariffs were implemented, the Trump administration announces a new set of tariffs on downstream products, what they call derivative products, things like steel nails and whatever. Because just as all the dork economists uh, predicted, um, when you put tariffs on steel, that made downstream users, like some of my old clients, uncompetitive because you were raising the price of their primary input. So what happened? Imports of stuff that used steel flooded into the United States market because suddenly they had um, uncompetitive competitors in the United States. So these derivative products come in. So the Trump administration goes, whoa, 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 whoa. How did this happen? We're going to put tariffs on those too. Again, no new report, just issued an executive order. There it goes, right? Um, which, of course, nothing smarter for our housing crisis than uh, slapping tariffs on building materials, but ne- nevertheless. Um, so that leads to a, a bunch of litigation, as you can imagine, because companies don't like suddenly seeing their primary inputs um, you know, increase in price dramatically. Um, foreign countries and foreign exporters certainly don't like to lose out on access to the U.S. market, so forth and so on. So we get a series of cases that trickle through the courts related to all sorts of aspects of the decision. Most of these cases ended very quickly because they were actually trying to challenge the underlying determinations by the Commerce Department or by the president. And the courts generally defer to the administrative the agencies, right? You guys know about this. Um, and they say, look, especially when it comes to national security, uh, we're not touching it. And what was one of them the uh, the public citizen challenge? I think that was a non-delegation uh, challenge. No, no, this was not on the non-delegation. So that came later. Okay. Um, this was this was a series of initial cases that really just said, look, um, the statute says X, Y, and Z. You didn't really do any of that. There's no national security threat. Uh, the, your Department of Defense said so. This, this is bogus. And the court said, yeah, sorry, we can't really step in. This, especially when it comes to national security, it's fine, go away. But the challenges to the Turkish tariffs and the derivatives tariffs actually did get some traction. They went to the Court of International Trade because the, the Court of International Trade ruled that the Turkey tariffs and the derivatives tariffs were actually inconsistent with the statute. They said this is illegal under the statute. We don't need any constitutional theories. We don't need anything like that. We just need to look at the law. And the law says that you you have to announce a decision and then you have 105 days or so to implement the decision. And that's it. You can't later on modify it and, you know, uh, double the tariffs and you can't apply it to different stuff. The statute has deadlines. And although we give wide, wide discretion to the executive branch when it comes to all of these kind of determinations, um, the statute's very, very clear. It says 105 days. You did it seven months later. This is this is a no-brainer, right? And then the derivatives, really the exact same reasoning. The Court of International Trade said two years later on a totally different product. Um, no, look, you need to you need to go back and you can you can apply those tariffs, but you need to have a new investigation. You have to do the the whole rigmarole, right? Regardless of how bogus all of that was, anyway, right? That's kind of the fiction in these decisions is that the original determinations were totally legitimate, which they were they were not, right? Um, so, uh, of course, those decisions from the Court of International Trade were appealed. And in Trans-Pacific, uh, that's the Turkey case, the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit said, no, it's totally fine. Uh, we're overturning the CIT decision because the original executive order said that the president might sometime modify the tariffs. And so because they used the word modify uh, in the original executive order, Um, they can modify the tariffs even if it's after the statutory deadline because the original order 
contemplated at some point down the line that the president might want to change the design of the tariff system. Is there any precedent for that? that well, well, the I mean, the law mentions that there can be a modification. Uh, the law mentions some negotiations, but but this gets to again, I think the fiction in U.S. trade law and in these cases about legitimacy. There's this assumption the president is acting legitimately. Never mind that everybody knows what's going on. I mean, the president is literally tweeting about what's going on. Does not matter. Sounds a lot like the rational basis test. It Well, you, rational basis actually came comes up um, because the, the courts basically say, look, the standard we're applying is going to be uh, basically rational basis. And uh, they said uh, Turkey's a big steel supplier in the determination when they doubled the tariffs. Of course, the lawyers are smarter than Trump. And they, when they wrote the official determination, they put in all this junk, right? Now, granted, they had no actual data to back it up. They didn't actually do a new investigation. But when they issued the executive order, it mentioned that Turkey's a major supplier and that uh, Tur- you know, the tariffs need to be increased to effectively get to that 80% capacity utilization number. Again, never mind that that number is totally bogus, was pulled out of basically the thin Google Air. Uh, so um, at the end of the day, they said, because he said modify, totally fine. Um, so Trans-Pacific, uh, while Trans-Pacific was getting decided at the Federal Circuit, this other case, Prime Source, came along. This was related to the derivatives. So Prime Source um, is basically the exact same case, but everything just is more egregious, right? So it's not seven months, it's two years later. It's not the same products that were listed in the original case. It's different products. They're just quote unquote derivatives, right? Um, so the court of a, the federal circuit basically said the same thing. They said that the president was looking to close a loophole uh, that was being exploited by steel derivatives importers. Um, so that's okay. Uh, the plan, because they mentioned modification in the original, um, executive order, he can do it. Um, and they said, in fact, the president, because he mentioned modification in the original order, he can basically do anything he wants after he said, even stuff not covered in the original investigation, even when there's no new data on the public record, they said, we are not going to second guess the facts that the president disused. We are not going to look at any of it. So at the end of the day, they said, well, what's a modification? Anything. What's a derivative product? Eh, Anything. What's appropriate? Because there's an appropriateness standard in the statute. Eh, Anything, right? (laughs) I mean, it's, it's, and again, if you're living through this, Trump is giving away the game throughout this whole process, right? He's, uh, and none of, none of it matters to the courts. Now, the last interesting part, though, is that the lawyers for Prime Source and for Trans-Pacific threw in a constitutional challenge. They threw in a non-delegation challenge. And this is the one that actually went to the Supreme Court in Trans-Pacific. So what they said was, look, if you decide that the president acted lawfully under the statute, if anything's a modification, if anything's a derivative, if anything's appropriate, well, then this is an improper delegation of congressional authority because Congress has the sole authority under Article One, Section 8 to, to regulate trade. I mean, it's right there in the Constitution. And Section 232, if it allows for all of this stuff, um, in fact, one of the Trump administration lawyers during the original Trans-Pacific case openly admitted that they could put tariffs on peanut butter under Section 232 on national security grounds, right? Um, that's how open-ended this statute is. And if you can modify it at any time and do all this stuff, they said, look, if you can do all that, then this fails as a proper uh, delegation. It's it's not an intelligible principle as the right. non-delegation doctrine, right? So – Unfortunately, um, there is an old case called Algonquin that effectively ruled out a non-delegation challenge for Section 232. Um, There was a challenge to 232 on these grounds. It is a very short, very vague law. It includes all these loopholes I just mentioned. And the Supreme Court said, nah, it's fine. Now, granted, this was the Supreme Court of the 1970s, not today's Supreme Court. 
And they said, no, you know, because they have to do an investigation and then they have to issue a report. The president then has to make a decision. And they, of course, were operating not under a, a not only under a different court that, of course, was a little uh, was more skeptical of non-delegation cha challenges as compared to this court. But also they were operating under an administration that was far more legitimate, acting far more legitimately. So the, the big question is, would Algonquin exist in the facts of these cases, right, which were just so egregiously corrupt for all the reasons described? But it doesn't matter, right? The court stuck to its precedent and uh, and in the federal circuit said, sorry, Algonquin says non-delegation challenge got to fail. We're not going to address that. And then the Supreme Court, unfortunately, never took up the case, uh, effectively saying Algonquin holds the end, right? So they denied, just to they recap- They denied cert, you mean? The yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, sorry. You see, this is, you know, I leave the law for a couple of years and I <laughs> I, I lose all track of terms. Um, I, you know, uh, uh, brain space filled by by better things. Um, but the, so, so just to recap, so you have a rational basis for any facts, uh, regardless of what the president's saying at the time or anything else, a total deference for any terms in the law about what's appropriate, what's a modification, what's a derivative, and no questioning of, of anything. Um, and, and that's the end. So you essentially have a statute now that is unlimited tariff power for the president. They can reverse engineer a decision by the Commerce Department and then tariff peanut butter if they want. Um, that said, there is one other case uh, called UPS Holdings that has made its way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court's actually hearing this case, which is pretty interesting because unlike in the other cases where the plaintiffs won, uh, in this, the plaintiffs kept losing. Um, but this is a challenge under the Administrative Procedures Act, the APA, and it's effectively challenging the underlying Department of Commerce report. Um, and it's saying that this report fails under the APA because it simply is irrational. It doesn't provide any basis for the tariffs, it doesn't, and the key is that it doesn't identify an actual national security threat. It basically just says, steel's important to the economy, these guys need 80% capacity utilization, ergo 24% tariffs, the end. And so that, the court is actually now hearing it right now, and unfortunately the Biden administration is vigorously defending uh, their tariff power. It seems like they there, there might be a some technical arguments in that case too, that there wasn't proper notice and comments and uh, yeah. you know, the court could dispose of it on a, a less earth shattering ground basically. Right. For sure. And, and that goes back to my PTSD as we lived through the absolute lack of procedure, transparency and due process throughout the steel tariffs process. Um, not only was the comment period a joke, uh, you basically submitted your comments and you could tell nobody ever read them. Uh, but then they did this whole exclusion process that you could apply to the Commerce Department to get an exclusion from the tariffs, but there were no procedures for that. And customs didn't know how to, how to do it, uh, how, to, how to implement it. Um, decisions per the GAO were highly politicized, big shock, right? Um, and so that process, uh, we I recall multiple times telling clients, you need to hire a lobbyist. Uh, if you wanna, <laughs> you wanna get your exclusions, uh, you need, which is great, right? You know, and talk about crushing the spirits of, of young lawyers everywhere, right? Um, the reality was this was not a legal process. It certainly wasn't an economic process. It was a political process. Uh, and so, yeah, I, you know, of course, I am highly biased against all of these uh, decisions. I mean, I think that it's an obvious uh, miscarriage of justice, but maybe the APA ones went on a technicality. You know, it's funny. It's really like a certain sweet spot of transfers of power from the legislature to the executive, right? Because it's you can do whatever you want and you just make up something that kind of sort of fits the statute, but it's not so much because it's not a delegation problem. You didn't give like all the power to the executive, just like 99%. That's exactly <laughs> the catch 22 that I thought naively in retrospect that was actually going to catch up, that was going to get, that was going to catch 
the Trump administration and then the Biden administration, right? Because to me, it made obvious sense that you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't say that the statute is so vague as to allow the president to do all these crazy things with steel and derivatives and turkey and the rest, but then come right back and say, oh, but it's so it's definite enough to be constitutional, right? You, I would think that you can't put tariffs on peanut butter as envisioned, envisaged under the statute. But no, the court took the exact opposite view. It said, no, it's super vague, but oh, that's that's totally constitutional. It's fine. The the issues that are that are going on with this, though, I, I think they do reflect a wider current in the law of just how much the executive can run away with a statute that wasn't really meant for this purpose. And and we are seeing the Supreme Court court pull back on that in certain other cases. You know, they didn't um, say the eviction moratorium during COVID exactly was unlawful, but they heavily, heavily implied it because like people not being able to pay their rent and therefore leaving their apartments and therefore spreading COVID was just too tenuous. We have this coming up with um, student loan cancellation under ideas about COVID and national emergencies. And you know, whether you see that kind of connection in a case like this, you know, whether or not they, they, you know, actually do this in the, in the APA case, there, there does seem to be some push in yeah. the form of the major questions doctrine, you know, that's reading just too much into the, the statute and, you know, maybe, maybe we'll see some progress. I don't know. I, I have heard that tariffs not only impose immense economic costs, but also fail to achieve their primary policy aims and foster well, I mean, political dysfunction yeah. along the way. Uh, I've heard that. <laughs> I think I saw it on a t-shirt once. I I, I, I didn't wear mine today, um, but uh, I have I have heard that as well. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, if you listen to some of the con law dorks out there, they will say that these 232 cases were actually terrible test cases for the non-delegation challenge because trade dances on Article 2 powers, first of all. But second, they're national security related and the courts are always super deferential when it comes to NATSEC stuff. And I I totally agree. But what I think makes these cases really – I mean what really kind of gets your libertarian cockles in a bunch you know, is that – the president was narrating this all in real time on Twitter and was giving away the game. And he did the same thing with the China tariffs, by the way, which were equally ridiculous in terms of their legal basis. Um, and yet the courts just act as if it all happened in this perfect vacuum by perfectly legitimate technocrats instead of Wilbur Ross, uh, and that this wasn't a reverse engineered decision, that it was perfectly legitimately decided and all blah, 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 right? And and it really, I think, shows a weakness in not just U.S. trade law, but U.S. law when it comes to deferring to the executive branch and to administrative decision making that, yeah, sure, you know, uh, I'm sure there are some very competent and in, and ethical bureaucrats out there. I'm sure of that. Don't take away my libertarian card for saying that, but I'm sure there are, right? Not today, at least. Right. Uh, in this space, I'm not, I'm not so sure. And again, we have tons of proof that this was like, at best, Keystone Cops, and at worst, just really gross cronyism, right? Just delivering rents to politically important steel uh, steel mill owners and steel workers in important states, right? And um, and it's gross. But the courts uh, don't they don't want to get into any of that for better or worse. Um, and so that's what we get. This is what we get. Do you know, Scott? If uh, the I didn't see it in this opinion, but if majors major question doctrine was raised or has been raised in this litigation, and if that's maybe how they'd frame it, if they go any higher. Yeah, I didn't see it in Prime Source, uh, which was basically Trans-Pacific Part Two. So right. I don't think I don't think it came up. Yeah, because I would think yeah, I think you're absolutely right that the as far as a non-delegation challenge, and we we at IJ have a non-delegation challenge going right now. Um, that when you're talking about national security, that is absolutely the worst. I mean, for, for example. Yeah. This is, uh, you know, this is an area where I could see Justice Thomas deferring to the government on national security grounds, as he did in some of the Guantanamo Bay cases, 
Um, but he, of course, would be one of the, the, the first ones off the ship for, for non-delegation doctrine. But if it right. like, we have this you know, major questions uh, concept that is now an actual thing, although it's very much being figure, figured out, and that is kind of the, as Justice Gorsuch has said, is kind of the halfway stop um, for for the future. Um, and it will, you know, we'll see, maybe not in this case, but in, in other, because these 232s aren't going away, it seems, in, in another case, maybe that gets raised. Yeah, and, and that actually, you, you raise a, an interesting point at the end that I tell you, the other depressing thing is that the Biden administration has not just allowed these tariffs to continue, but has vigorously defended them in court. Um, and I think this gets to the other problem you have with uh, delegations of power is that the executive branch, even if they disagree with the tariffs, and I don't know what they think, um, they're going to jealously guard the power they've been given because there's always somebody whispering in their ear. And I know this, this is not, they're not even whispering it. This is people quite openly writing about this that, Hey, a really expansive 232 can let you, President Biden, do all sorts of really interesting things on your priorities, like climate change, for example. So you have to defend these idiotic steel tariffs because then you'll have the power to do green tariffs under 232, right? And and that, I think, is a really tough nut to crack as well, is that, um, you know, once you put the ring on your finger, uh, it's very difficult to voluntarily take it off. Can you imagine what would go wrong if people like him were in charge? I mean, foreign flagged vessels would sail between U.S. ports and we wouldn't have a viable merchant marine the next time there's a war. Yeah, well, let's face it. Any Anybody who's like openly campaigning to give back power is uh, not going to get very far in our system these days, I don't think. Well, uh, one way that people can get back a little bit of power from the hands of the state is through the poisonous tree, namely the fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine, um, when the cops come to your house and illegally enter. So we're going to make a bit of abrupt shift now from steel tariffs. Nice segue, to, by the way. Very nice uh, well, segue. We, we do what we can. Um, from steel tariffs to uh, illegal warrants. And Andrew, um, it seems like uh, you did mention, Scott mentioned the Keystone Cops. We had a little bit of the Keystone Cops Outside this uh, this duplex, um, and the Sixth Circuit was writing about. So, um, what happened there? And if you could describe maybe the best way to to get rid of a mysterious white powder substance on very short notice. Well, if you have more than five kilograms of it, you might not even be able to flush it. Um, yeah, this is sort of keystone everybody. The uh, the reason this case is on the podcast, um, maybe the segue is that this is one where they the court actually is kind of doing a surprising amount of, of taking constitutional rights seriously, uh, which I'll get to. But this case is primar- primarily on the podcast, honestly, just because it's uh, – a lot of just sort of Fourth Amendment shenanigans. Um, so this is this is a case, a criminal prosecution called United States v. Wade, and it's just kind of like this. I mean, I don't know. Drug dealing is bad, and it's not funny, but it, but it's also just sort of like a comedy of errors of what goes on here. So we're in Lexington, Kentucky, and a shed catches on fire. We don't know why. It might be arson. It might be that the shed just caught on fire. We'll never find out why the shed caught on fire. That's not that's not part of the opinion. Divine but intervention shed, is my guess. It, it was I mean, by maybe. But a shed catches on fire. The cops show up. The arson investigators show up. Um, they don't realize what happened. They call the non-resident owner of the shed. She doesn't even live there. She doesn't know either. She's, they tell her, ask around, she thinks it might have something to do with her ex-husband because he's vindictive and, like, there's particular familial significance to the date on which the shed caught on fire. They tell her to ask around, but they do notice that there's security cameras on the duplex next door, and they think that that might provide evidence. Um, they, uh, they ask uh, Mr. Wade's mother... Um, He's the guy Mr. next Wade door. Is the, is right. Mr. Mr. Wade, Wade is the owner of the guy next door. He's got the cameras. They ask his mother. He says, ah, he, she says he probably won't let you in there for reasons to be clear. <laughs> um, but they ask if they can get the camera footage. 
Wade's mom says no. So they go and apply for a warrant because the non-resident owner who wasn't there says she heard from someone that someone was prowling about. Uh, so they go to the court with that extremely detailed information, uh, a warrant issues. Uh, they go back to Wade's house to get his camera footage. He's not there. The mom doesn't want to let them in. She calls him back. Wade shows up. Uh, they, uh, before they're going in, they say, is there anything we should know about? He confesses to there being drugs in the property. They go over and look well, at his well, car. Well, a little bit of marijuana, right? Or, or a little, it, a, a smidge. He says there's a little bit of marijuana. They go to his car and they find like a blunt or something. Um, and then they apply for a warrant to search this place for drugs now that he's confessed that there's a little bit of marijuana. Um, and they're all sort of waiting around, at which point the police say tremendous noises come from this duplex. They give the suspiciously accurate, um, along with this guy's alleged, um, yeah, suspiciously accurate commentary that they're trying to pull the roof down is what it sounds like. Um, so they think that the Wades are destroying evidence. At this point, they go in um, under other Fourth Amendment doctrine. They are not executing the camera footage warrant. They go in because they think that there are exigent circumstances about the destruction of evidence based on roof pulling down noises. And they find a gigantic hole connecting duplex unit three to duplex unit one. In fact, someone had pulled down the roof in an apparent... Um, means of dealing with some kind of mysterious white powder because the police are outside. Uh, they find drains, the sink, the toilet full of a bunch of unidentified white powder. Uh, and at this point, um, <laughs> they, they actually don't search the entire place despite all this is going on. They later finish up coming back with all the warrants. They execute all the warrants yeah, I love for the how drugs they go back for and the footage. After all that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, while the opinion does not reveal what the unidentified white powder that was trying to be flushed is, uh, Wade ultimately conditionally pleads guilty to possession of a bunch of cocaine and heroin. Um, but I'm not going to accuse him of doing anything because ultimately his conviction is vacated. This man is innocent legally. Um, and why is that? It is because of the fruit of the poisonous tree. That doctrine, Anthony, that you mentioned is a basic concept in fourth amendment law that if you perform an illegal search, the general rule is suppression of illegal evidence. And it's not just anything directly coming from an inappropriate search in violation of the fourth amendment. It's any fruit from that poisonous tree, so the sort of proximate results of the illegality. And basically, this all goes back to the original warrant to get the camera footage. Uh, the court, I think correctly, holds that a warrant that says that we talked to someone who wasn't there and she says that she heard that somebody was prowling about uh, is not sufficient for probable cause. Uh, that's a low standard, but it does mean a fair chance a crime has been committed. So this needs to be arson or some other crime. It, it can't be a fair chance a fire happened. Uh, the warrant is held to be insufficient. And as a result, the court says everything that follows from that uh, isn't going to be admissible in court. This guy's conviction has to be reversed because all that drugs and the confessions about the little bit of pot uh, all of that has to be excluded, and this guy has to be retried. He probably won't be, since now all the mysterious white powder is out of the game. Um, but what's interesting about this, that sort of in contrast to what we talked about in the last case, is you do see the court not being so deferential. Um, there are a lot of exceptions in Fourth Amendment doctrine that allow police to use evidence that was obtained in violation of the Fourth Amendment. There's a thing about independent discovery. There's a thing about inevitable discovery. Oh, it doesn't matter that we violated the Constitution because we would have found that stuff anyway. Um, there's a doctrine about proximity that all of this is just sort of too far attenuated. Um, and the court goes through some of these doctrines and rejects their applicability here. It basically says all of this was because of a tainted warrant. It doesn't matter that they weren't actually executing the warrant. They still, all of this happened. Um, the original confession about the little bit of marijuana happened because they were threatening to enforce the warrant. 
they only got into his car because he came back because they wanted to enforce the warrant. All this um, tearing the roof down, making some kind of inter drywall hole for like pounds of cocaine or something. I don't know. Um, that only happened because they were outside threatening to enforce this warrant and the warrant was no good. It was the same afternoon. Um, so all of this is the result of that. Um, and it's, it's an interesting case in that you see these doctrines applied a lot to say, eh, it's no big deal. We know this guy was a criminal. And so we're going to treat him like one. And here you have a not so rare, but a, but a less common example of, of a court really being willing to enforce the amendment. It, it fourth amendment, it, it does so over a dissent. And, and honestly, it kind of brings to mind the, the thing I thought about this when I was reading this case is, um, and I don't know, maybe I'm going to sound like an idiot in philosophy 101, like being exposed to new ideas in freshman year of college for the first time. But like, what a thing, man, like this guy's this owner's maybe ex-husband maybe burned down a shed out of spite because he's a vindictive guy. And that's why this guy gets found out this unrelated guy who just happens to live next door, you know, with five pounds of cocaine it, it you know, for a butterfly flaps its wings. Um or, uh, or for one of a nail, the, the kingdom was, was lost. It's a lot like, actually, a case everybody reads in the first year of torts is a is called Paul's Graph v. Long Island Railroad, where these two guys are trying to get on the, the train that goes out Long Island, and the first guy makes it on the train, but the second guy doesn't quite get there. So the train staff, like, pushes him on the train, but that makes him drop his package, and the package is full of fireworks, and the fireworks explode, and somehow that knocks down some scales across the station, and it hurts poor Helen Palsgraf, and she's injured. Um, I kind of thought that, that was what was going on here. Who knew, like, a lightning strike or some vagrants, maybe, that's also a possibility that, like, burned down to shed. It's like the, the Fourth up- Amendment Palsgraf. Uh, it, it, it's yeah, it's like the except that we get the opposite result in Paul's graph. Uh, Justice, I guess, would then be judge. Judge Cardozo of the New York Court of Appeals holds that there is not proximate causation here because this is just too wacky and cartoonish. A sequence of events here, the vagrants or the husband or lightning or somebody setting that on fire. The bogus warrant was still close enough to the cocaine and heroin that it all must be suppressed. Yeah, it. I mean, it shows to me we we haven't talked about much about fruit of the poisonous tree on on short circuit, but uh, usually there's a way around it, and it especially you know in recent years of the Supreme Court, it 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 hasn't come up all that much, and here it they it just kind of everything happened at the at the moment when they used the wrong warrant, and therefore there was not what we. Uh, we, we, there was what we would call proximate cause, like like you say, Andrew, to um, to allow the doctrine to to attach. Uh, but even then, there's this dissent, and and the, the the dissenting judge says, "Well, you know, there was. I get the the first warrant wasn't great, but it wasn't that bad, and and so it it makes you realize it's really just kind of a, a balancing test, and it's not quite rational basis, and that's how this guy is able to suppress the evidence, but it's not." too far off um which i th- i think you know the court didn't reflect on this but it goes back to to the idea not that it's the right idea that the exclusionary rule which is how this evidence gets thrown out in the first place is considered by many judges to kind of be just a made up standard and therefore if it, that's already made up and so you're getting advantage of one made up rule this fruit of the poisonous tree is just kind of you know, throwing another made-up rule on there, and so um, you know, it, it 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 shouldn't it should be used sparingly, um, but it actually was used in this case. Yeah, the uh, the dissent's argument is basically that you know they weren't executing this warrant, so it's not really because of the warrant, but the majority, I think correctly says in a simple yeah. causal sense no it is because of the warrant it doesn't matter if they were executing it all of this stuff happened because they were there with that warrant and using authority based on that warrant um and it turned out there was a lot of heroin that a jury won't ever know about so scott i'm sure uh that fourth amendment law doesn't come up too much in your trade analysis but one thing i yeah. did want to close with on on this case is uh you know, the, the kind of most foundational Fourth Amendment case that uh, that Fourth Amendment scholars and lawyers know about is this case called Boyd, uh, Boyd 
from 1886 that is about importing sheets of glass. Okay. And uh, a Fourth Amendment, you know, the Fourth Amendment and Fifth Amendment rights of the of the importers. It was actually a, a, a civil forfeiture case. Um, so I, I, you know, people try to import various things, and sometimes some of the things are okay, and some aren't okay, or some maybe just have a higher tariff rate, and you'd you know you'd like for the inspector not to yeah. inspect that. Do, is this Fourth Amendment stuff, uh, you know, exclusionary rule? Does it come up much? For importers, or is that is that they, they leave that to the the, the narcotic uh, officers? Well, no, only if you're trying to import baby formula <laughs> and from Europe. If you're trying to import baby formula from Europe, then you're in deep trouble. Uh, and and by the way, I'm actually not kidding. Uh, too much uh, prior to our baby formula crisis, customs was routinely seizing European baby formula at the border because, of course, it didn't satisfy uh, FDA restrictions on labels and scoop size. You know, the really important stuff, right? Uh, but in terms of Fourth Amendment, I, I'm not aware of, of, uh, of that coming up too much. I I, I was just thinking about like general IJ issues. If you can get qualified immunity for setting someone on fire in order to prevent him from setting himself on fire, I don't know. It's probably fine to protect babies by taking away their food. There's logic there. Oh, oh, undoubtedly, undoubtedly. No, in the middle. No, I. So my, uh, I was in the journal last year with my colleague Emily writing. They were doing this after the crisis began. So we're talking. It's April of 2022. Store shelves are literally empty. Parents are freaking out. The president is starting Operation Fly formula to bring in supplies. And Customs is seizing individual shipments of European baby formula uh, because it didn't – again, it didn't have the right scooper. Um, so a surely protecting babies requires that level of, of onerous – government action. Well, let's close on a, um, a less depressing note. Uh, and that's uh, Scott is famous on Twitter uh, for having top five, top five, whatever it is. So I asked him to give our, our, our top five today. It's OK if it's a, a top five. He's he's already done. I was tempted to ask him for his top five circuits, uh, federal circuit <laughs> courts. But, um, you know, that might that might make some of our clerk listeners mad. So we don't want to go there. So in, instead, Scott, give me um, your, your top five list to, that, will, uh, that, that will close off this, this episode of Free Trade. Yeah, since we just had President's Day, which is, um, I think, a pretty bogus holiday generally, uh, I figured we should do top five holidays. Um, so I'm going to go in reverse order because, you know, that gives you the build up to number one. Uh, so I'll start at number five with MLK Day. Uh, I think MLK Day is great. It is at a perfect time of year when you're just trying to work back into the work week uh, or, you know, things have you you're shaking off the cobwebs from from the Christmas season. Um, MLK Day comes along and boom, three day weekend right when you need it. Um, so, you know, you don't throw yourself out the office window. Um, and also it's a great message for the kids. Uh, it's a, and a, a worthy of celebration in general. Uh, fourth, uh, got to go Memorial Day. Uh, similarly, I think good, good thing to remember and, and memorialize generally. Uh, and, but also the timing is just incredible, right? Things are just starting to get warm. Everybody's dying to get in the pool. You finally have to clip your toenails. I mean, it's great stuff. School's Memorial out. Day. You really, right. It's just a about. celebration of warm weather and, and bright days. Uh, third, Christmas. Uh, now, I know listeners out there are going to be mad. I know Andrew's ticked at this coming in only at third. But, you know, Christmas is good. I Christmas is fine. I, I enjoy the music. Uh, the day, of course, is, is important. Uh, but it's way too materialistic. There's so much pressure and gift giving. Uh, it has a two-month buildup, which no legitimate holiday really needs. Uh, and it just knocks it down the list for me. I, you know, I can't give it anything higher than third. Second, uh, Fourth of July, Independence Day, just just great stuff. I love 
things that explode. Uh, it's a really just great day. Everybody seems to be at kind of uh, peak relaxation around that time. Uh, and of course, you know, you're celebrating independence. Who doesn't want, who doesn't like that, right? Uh, and then finally, number one, by a large margin, Thanksgiving. Uh, really can't beat it. I'm a huge fan of food. Uh, I make a salad bowl full of stuffing every year and freeze it for other parts of the year so that I can relive Thanksgiving. Um, you have an automatic four-day weekend because it always falls on a Thursday. That's really choice. Um, of course, again, great, great thing to celebrate in general. Um, and sports, right? All you do is sit around, sleep, maybe talk to your family, watch sports, eat, go watch more sports, eat some more, and then go to sleep. Um, just truly a, uh, a celebration of gluttony. So um, that's my top five. I think that's that's sold. One asterisk I'll get coming up is uh, I, I have a, a special place in my heart, even though I'm not Irish, for uh, St. Patrick's Day. Would, oh, would really? you rank that? Anywhere close to top five, or is just it's not on your? Oh radar? no, definitely. That's a. I think that's a minor league holiday. Really, that's down there with uh, with um, New Year's. Um, really, you know, I'm not Irish, uh, so I, I I guess it's a. I don't even. You know, it's one of those that I guess it's fine. Um, you don't get a day off. Um, you there's the food. Eh, I mean, I like corned beef and cabbage. It's fine, but let's face it. It's, it's nothing compared to, uh, sausage and cornbread stuffing. So eh, eh, it's okay. But, um, you know, certainly not in the top five. All right. Well, a Andrew, any, any strong words or are you good? You're good with Scott's list. I mean, I respect Scott's list. Thanksgiving is a very good and respectable choice. I mean, like his tolerance, gluttony, hanging out with your family and just like celebrating the material abundance that is American society. I yeah. It's great. My Amen. personal choice is Christmas, but like Thanksgiving's a good call. Well, let's leave it there. Uh, Scott and Andrew, thank you so much for coming on. Scott, if people want to learn more about free trade, what Cato says on this subject, all that jazz, uh, where should they go? Well, first go to Cato.org uh, and look us up. Uh, that's the most obvious place. And then you'll always find me hanging around on Twitter at Scott Lunscombe. Uh, and then finally, you know, I have a newsletter every week. Um, I write for the Dispatch uh, newsletter called Capitalism with an O. Uh, get it because it's a play on words because it's, you know, policy that it comes from the capital. Uh, and uh, you can find me there writing once a week on stuff, trade stuff and non-trade stuff. This week we wrote about buybacks and why demonizing them is very stupid. Well, that all sounds wonderful. We'll go there, read a little bit about buybacks uh, from our friends at the Dispatch. Thank you again for coming on, Scott and Andrew, and for everyone else. I'll see you in a few weeks. Listen to Anya next couple weeks. And in the meantime, I hope that all of you get engaged. Mm -hmm.